0: I once ran into a young woman who told me, she said, you know, she was in um, foster care. Um, so she was going from home to home. And she said, you know, we only got sometimes all my things, her things were in a trash bag. And, and she said, you know, someone had given her a breath ice memory. And she said, it went with me to every home, Wow. You know? And she said, you know, and she said, and every time I would get there, I'm, you know, I would reread it, and it would anchor me. You know, things like that. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. In the beginning, you read this—the uh, proverb, "Paul Paul Words have wings. Words have feet." You know, and so, and sometimes they have so much. They, you know, just beyond one's expectation. Because, I mean, initially, what what I was doing was writing something for myself, like writing something. Um, That I needed you know as a 15 year old in America who's just kind of looking for like interpretations of myself so um so sometimes you sort of like the bomb is yours like you're just writing this thing to to make to heal you and then it reaches out to other people Happy
1: New Year, everyone! It is 2024. We welcome you with lots of love and joy as we welcome in the new year. To kick off our episodes for this year, we are honored to have the prolific author Edwidge Dantica with us today. We recorded this episode at the end of 2023, and we are so delighted that she is kicking off this year for us with her wisdom, her insight, and the beautiful passages from her incredible library of fiction, short stories, memoir. She has done it all. So welcome to the year. Welcome to a new episode with the one and only Edwidge Dantica. Salam and hello, everyone. My name is Lily Bakalev Piper. and today I am just beyond, beyond thrilled to welcome a very, very special guest. Let me read some of her prolific writing to you. Listen, listen before it passes. Paul Genpier, Paul Genzel. The words can give wings to your feet. There is so much to say, but time has failed you, she said. There is a place where women are buried in clothes the color of flames, where we drop coffee on the ground for those who went ahead, where the daughter is never fully a woman until her mother has passed on before her. There is always a place where if you listen closely in the night, you will hear your mother telling a story. And at the end of the tale, she will ask you this question. Oui, Libé? Are you free, my daughter? My grandmother quickly pressed her fingers over my lips. Now, she said, you will know how to answer. These are the beautiful words of my special guest today. Edwige Danticat is one of our greatest writers of the 21st century. If you know her work, you have enjoyed the way she has spun tales of fiction nonfiction, short stories, stories for young readers, stories for people like myself, stories for her people in IAT and for all of us in the diaspora. Edwidge has been one of those writers whose words captivate you and trouble you and cause your imagination to go further than you anticipated. Let me tell you a little bit more about the ways that the world has recognized her work. She's the author of several books, What I read from you just now was from Breath, Eyes, and Memory, which she wrote at the tender age of 25 and became a national bestseller when it appeared on the Oprah Book Club. She's also an author of Crack, a National Book Award finalist, The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, Rather I'm Dying, which might be my favorite, Create Dangerously, Claire of the Sea Light, The Art of Death, and so on. Her most recent novel, Everything Inside, which is a collection actually of short stories, not a novel, but a collection of short stories, is a National Book Critics Circles Award winner. She's also the editor of The Butterfly's Way, Voices of the Haitian Diaspora in the United States, Best American Essays 2011, AIT Noir, and AIT Noir II. She has written, like I said, for people of all ages, and she's captured our attention and the world has taken note honoring her as a 2007 finalist for the National Book Award for Brother Angraig, a 2008 winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography as well. She's also a 2009 MacArthur Fellow, the 2018 Ford Foundation Art of Change Fellow, a United States Artist Fellow, a two-time winner of the Story Prize, and a 2018, oh, this is the word I will not be able to pronounce correctly, Neustadt International Prize and the 2019 St. Louis Literary Award. Earlier this year, she was also given the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Penn Malamud Prize. And when they wrote about her work and her contributions to literature, this is what was said about Edwidge. She is a once in a generation writer, one who changes the landscape of fiction by crafting stories that exalt the human experience into the realm of the mythic. So, salam and hello, listeners. It is just my great pleasure and honor to welcome Edwidge to the show today. Karibu sana. We are so happy to have you with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
1: Well, Edwidge, I was first introduced to your work by your fellow Haitian scholar and brilliant writer, Regine Jean Charles, my dear, dear friend, who brought one of your books to me back in the early 2000s. Since that time, I have continued to read and love your work, and I have a a daughter who loves your work, and so I cannot wait to just learn more about your craft and your work and the tremendous impact you've had on literature and the nonfiction world. So let me start with an easier question here. Those of us here in East Africa, we have roots to the entire diaspora, but for those who maybe don't know your work as well, Edwidge, how do you introduce yourself when you enter a room of new people for the first time?
0: Well, I usually just say I made weed <laughs> and then, um, being sort of a, you know, an introvert, you kind of, uh, let it, and then I ask people questions about themselves. That's usually my, <laughs> my that's my, that's my, um, cocktail party strategy. Um, <laughs> but, um, if pressed, you know, I would say I'm, um, um, i'm a I'm a writer. I'm also a mom. I'm a wife, I'm a sister. I'm a friend. And my friend Eugene certainly is responsible for a lot of my book sales. <laughs> she, I, I, keep, I keep meeting people who you know, who are connected to her. I, I told her when we were talking about this,' I like I said, you know everybody, you know, Li Moon, as we would say in in Creole. <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, I've um, those are really like the, the centers of my life, but writing has always been a part of it. Um, and initially through storytelling. Um, and so I was born in Haiti. And when I was two, my dad moved to the U S. And when I was four, my mom joined him and I was, you know, I grew, I spent eight years with my aunt and uncle in a house, um, you know, full of kids and um when i was 12 my my parents who were undocumented in the us and um got their were finally able to get their papers and send for us so i joined them when i was 12 my brother and i and, and they had two um you know my, my two younger brothers who were born in the states so we tried to um you know remerge this family that had been separated and when i Got here in this new land, you know, like writing and reading and and just thinking back to the stories that I was told really was a lifeline for me. So hmm. that's really the trajectory, a little bit of the trajectory of my life and also through, yeah. through writing. So
1: I'm curious to know, if you don't mind, when you were reunited as a family, when you look back to that time, what role did stories play as you got to know your new brothers, as you got to know a new country?
0: Yes, you know, stories, I think, filled in this absence, too, um, because I just keep thinking back to to my parents. Just their absence was felt differently because, for example, every Sunday we had a standing appointment to go to this phone booth downtown in downtown Port-au-Prince, because they, we didn't have a phone at home, there were no cell phones at that time. So every Sunday afternoon, after, after church for them, after church for us, we would walk downtown with my uncle, and talk to them for about fifteen very expensive minutes. <laughs> and um, and my mom, I remember, would just try to tell us, you know, she tried to be very like routine about it. Like this is what I'm doing. This is, you know, what are you doing? And you know, and and now realizing the you know, the sort of the, how brief that conversation needed to be. Um, and then and then people in my life, you okay. know, told me these stories. My aunts told me stories. My uncle told me stories. Stories they were told. And then you were supposed to always extract a lesson from it. And because we were, you know, our parents were not with us often. There were a lot of stories about absent mothers, for example. Mm-hmm. And And then I realized as an adult that I was being told these stories as a kind of comfort, because sometimes you feel like when you're told certain stories that you're being given a cultural gift, right? You don't see it as a personal gift. So you're like, oh, this is part of my heritage. This is, you know, it is that too. But I realized as I've gotten older, you know, especially as when my parents passed away, that a lot of those stories were supposed to give you guides, you know, like mm-hmm. hints about how to live your life as you, as you, and, and, and a lot of the stories also especially the haitian stories assume that it was going to be a difficult life and wow. and these were going to be your tools to to help get you through that life in the same way that you know religious people are giving you know biblical verses you're given these stories also as kinds of you know points of of light or points of guidance in your life
1: yeah that's really such a legacy that they've left you and and now you're leaving through your tremendous body of work. When you think about some of your early works in particular, or even what you've written for young younger readers, what for you is the tie between those early stories maybe that your parents were telling you and then the first evidence of those stories in your written work?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, I remember, I think there was a moment when I was about four where I understood that there was that stories could be also written and so I was told all these stories and and it was really like the way adults told them this was the only time they were really Lively they seemed like they were having fun and I thought oh there's a kind of magic in that because these very Stern people are suddenly happy <laughs> like when they're doing this task you know when they're telling these stories at night and you know it's like a lively thing and sometimes you know they would tell them at wakes, you know, the night before funeral. And that was really confusing to me when I was a kid about sort of how happy people were at wakes. And then the next morning, they're like writhing on the floor, you know, I mean, but eventually it was, it, it showed, I think, just how we mourn, right? Like how you celebrate your life is also part of mourning. And then when I was four, my uncle gave me a book um Madeline, you know, about a little girl in a house in Paris that was covered with vines. Um and these, you know, with these nuns. And and I and I know my my young mind even then thought, oh my uncle and aunt are like the nuns (laughs) with all these kids whose whose parents you don't know where they are and they're just that strict and we had these rows of beds, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And I you know and I think this was the first time that I felt like my world can reach out to these other worlds that that there were other people living similar lives like me who didn't look like me. Yeah. And and then I I realized, oh, I was able to know that because I'm sitting here alone with this book. Um and and I realized the power of that that oh, because I was shy, like I was I never could imagine myself like like the head of one of those storytelling sessions. But I was reading this book and I thought, oh, that is really fascinating because this person doesn't have to be here to tell me the story and I can take it with me and I can be alone with it. You know, that alone part, you know, because that was a also a rare commodity in a big house with a bunch of people like to be alone. So I could go like to the, the roof of my, you know, my uncle's house and sit there with this book by myself to me that felt like the height of luxury and then I realized I was like I don't know how this thing is done but I want to do that like I don't want to do the thing where you stand in front of people I want to do the one where you like put the words in the paper and um and really that's for me when I started making that transfers and and uh, because of it being exposed to the stories around the same period of time gave them equal power to me but I just felt like oh this is this one that if I'm read and write, I can, I can do. You know. mm.
1: I love what you've said about these stories being, you know, a map, a pathway, almost a passport at times to different worlds, but also to connect you to your family. And I'm an Ethiopian immigrant myself and, and coming to the US, I, I have you're just you're unearthing memories for me of what it felt like to get away with a book because aunt and uncle had, you know, this room cousins had that room, Brother and sister. And so we all, we were a big household like you fighting for air, but books became this haven. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me because it's just unearthing for me, my own affinity for books and, and not realizing that maybe that that's exactly what they were doing for me is creating other worlds. So when you go to pen some of your stories, I'm curious, at what point do you know what whether that idea is going to be a short story? Is it going to be You know, for young readers, is it going to be for a novel? At what point in the idea, you know, when the ideas start twirling in your mind or your pen starts to move, do you know what direction your story is going to take?
0: Um, It's really, I let the story guide me because some stories just come with one line and Mm -hmm. some stories just come with one image. Um, I remember, for example, with um, Claire of the Sea Light, uh, and I had, I had watched this documentary about children in Haiti who are orphaned, but are not mm-hmm. really orphaned. You know, they're in orphanages, but sometimes their parents walk them over to the orphanage because it's sort of this poisty bargain they make. They're like, I can't, to give my child a better life, I'll give them away. Just like my parents are like, we'll leave my child behind so I can,
1: mm-hmm.
0: for a better future. And so... I just remember like watching this documentary and with these people who had adopted some kids from Haiti and then they were saying, oh, you know, they give their kids away. I mean, not so mean, but it's like, oh, but they, it's just like, it's simpler for them. And I just realized, and I was just like, I had just become a parent myself and, and mm-hmm. I knew the heart wrenching and I was like, and I went to bed that night and this little girl showed up, you know, like I just had this dream about this young girl, Claire of the Steeler, like with her phone that came up and sometimes it's one line comes up and you just follow that thread um and i i never know i mean i the novel for me is a rare beast you know i never sit down and assume i'm going to write a novel because i tend to be shorter in terms of like i'm more economical in my in mm-hmm. like and probably because i have a very short attention span <laughs> like and so I, I never think, oh, I'm going to write this epic book. And I love my, you know, I just I'm love and envious of my friends who can do that. So I'm always, I always assume it's going to be on the shorter side, and then it expands. So that's usually, and maybe it's from sort of this background of consuming stories like that initially. Um, so, for example, you know, the Farming of Bones started with a story, um, 1937, in Creek Crag. And I thought when, and that one just wouldn't leave me. And then I went deeper and deeper into the research. And, um, but I, I think this letting the story tell you what it wants to be, um, has usually, has usually worked for me. And I try not to force it, you know, and everything inside that story, seven stories was supposed to was almost novel length. And then at some point I, I realized, oh, I'm just, not much is happening in this story. I just like these people. <laughs> I, just, I just like. like <laughs> I was like, I just like this world, you know. I'm like, I want to hang out with them, <laughs> and I'm just <laughs> writing this to hang out with them. And so then that one got, you know, that was a a much longer story that just got shrunk into that to its essence. So sometimes that happens too, where you have something longer. And it's like, oh, this is not meant to be this long. And then it's yeah. you know, shorter.
1: Well, and so speaking of these longer novels, and let's talk a little bit about Brother I'm Dying, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. Such a personal and, and powerful story. And as I've read your own commentary about the book and, and the events that informed it. Did a longer book just fit because it was indeed an, an epic story of years and of circumstances that really two of the some of the most significant people in your lives are featured in that book? Um, tell us just about how that book came to be and and maybe what you were feeling as you wrote it because the details are are heartbreaking.
0: Yes, yeah, so uh, "Brother, I'm Dying" is about this year that I had in 2000. For 2005, where um, my uncle died in immigration custody in the U.S., um, the, Michael, who raised me, who I've been talking about <laughs> indirectly a little bit, and my father was diagnosed with pulmonary fibrosis, and my daughter was born, and all of that in that in that year. And it's interesting because I've never, of all the time that I've never written a book. That quickly, with a newborn at you know at home um, too, and yeah. I think part of that was came out of the the urgency of that story. So, mm-hmm. you know, after my uncle passed, you know, passed away, we were given you know, so he was you know for a little bit more detailed the the UN was in Haiti at that time and they were on you know, they came to his neighborhood, which is very, uh, you know, my neighborhood too, which yes. is a very political um, neighborhood, but, you know, political in the sense of that they rallied around causes. They were rallied um, around the uh, then first democratically elected President Javertz and who had, you know, been disposed in a coup d'etat. And they just, you know, it was just a really vibrant, Neighborhood. There were a lot of marches there, and so then the UN um, came that day. They they climbed on top of my uncle's church to shoot at some armed groups that you know that were starting to grow and had I get and has actually proliferated since then in, in the area. And they shot and killed some people. And then after they withdrew, um, some the neighbors came. They thought my uncle had given permission, and then he. You know, he had a visa and a, he had been coming to the U.S. for decades and then um, he came. And then when he got here, he said he requested asylum. He was 81 years old. He was um, detained. His medication was taken away and he died chained to a hospital bed. So that was uh, the story. And then so when he passed away, you know, my uncle and I went and got his, you know, you have to. we went to get his body for burial and they gave us his suitcase. And in his suitcase, there was like, he had kept these notes, you know, sort of like shorthand notes about along the way from the time, like, and Mm -hmm. he had a list of things like he had lost. And and then he also had his, a copy of his immigration interview and, and, Mm -hmm. and of some, like just a few pages of his, like some medical things. And so I, when I got that, I thought, oh my gosh, you know, my uncle had always talked about like, People in my family always either said, are you writing about me or don't write about me? Like it's usually <laughs> like, like that's the, the perimeter. And so my my uncle was always like, when are you going to write about me? And so when I got his um, briefcase, I thought, you know, this is the time and I'm going to write this because he can't, you know, and, and there was a, such a moment of circularity in my and my family. So that book was very personal in the sense, like I always say to people, like I feel, um and I'm glad it's your favorite, like because I always say that, you know, I feel like if I had, if I got one, you know, like if there was some kind of deal to be made and they're like, you get one, this would be the one because mm-hmm. I, because it, I, it'll be important to my children and the young people in my family. You know, just last night, some of my, two of my nieces were over. And, and, and sometimes, you know, it's strange to be at this age now, I'm 54, where young people like teenagers are talking about events in your life. Like they happened in the, you know, in the middle ages. It's history <laughs> like, now. It's history. Yes. Like they'll say, Oh yes, I heard this. And, you know, and, and my, my, one of my nieces, Zoe was saying, Oh yes, I heard this, that one of our uncles and the, and I said, well, it's in, brother, I'm dying. You know, you're, you're old enough to read it now. And yeah. so that that's, I that feel like for me, that's the weight of that book, just for my family. And to, because there's a lot of our family history there. And I, to a certain extent, everything that I was told by my father and my uncle about our family history mm-hmm. is in that book. So it's, it's, a it's, yeah. a, it's a very close to my heart.
1: Which to me just speaks to both the power of your work and how important stories remain, because so much of our histories have not been, or we don't have as easy or quick access to some of our histories as we should. They've been documented in ways that are not yet publicly accessible in the ways that we hope. And so works like Brother, I'm Dying, I'm sure for even other Haitians, is a a source of history for them and a source of information and understanding. And what do you hear from your fellow Haitians in the diaspora or at home about what your works have meant to them and what they take from your work?
0: Well, I mean, it's, you know, the the work, for me, it's always moving, certain encounters that I I have about specific works at times, right? And Mm -hmm. um, I once ran into a young woman who told me, she said, you know, she was in um, foster care. Um, so she was going from home to home. And she said, you know, we only got sometimes all my things, her things were in a trash bag. And and she said, you know, someone had given her a birth ice memory. And she said, it went with me to every home, wow. you know. And she said, you know, she said, and every time I would get there, you know, I would reread it and it would anchor me you know things like that i mean that's the thing in the beginning you read this uh, the proverb, paul paul words have wings words have feet you know and so and sometimes they have so much they you know just beyond one's expectation because i mean initially what what i was doing was writing something for myself like writing something um that i needed you know, as a 15 year old in America, who's just kind of looking for like interpretations of myself. So, um, so sometimes you sort of like the bomb is your, like you're just writing this thing to, to make, to heal you. And then it reaches out to other people. So not that it's always been great. And that's exactly how it should be. You know, there's also been some pushback, especially, um, with breath ice memory because of the issue of, you know, the virginity testing. And I think, and, and, you know, I think sometimes less so now because we have so many voices of young, you know, women of color, black women, black women in the diaspora, of the entire diaspora and who are, you know, so, um, but back then, you know, like almost 30 years ago, they were fewer of us. And so they, it's like if you, you know, it was kind of like you were supposed to like, Just tell the good stories, like don't make us look bad, don't tell stories out of school. So I think a lot of people um, wrestled with that. And I completely understand this idea of representation, right? And so that's where for me it's always been important to also like edit works, you know, like bring in other voices, because I think the more we hear from people from the same group of people, the more like this sort of like this only one thing, we can dissipate that and people can just see, oh, yes, I'm part of a tradition. There there are a lot of other people walking this path with me, some of, not all of them in English. And I think think that's very important um, for people to also know, like beyond me, that there's this whole huge literature that stands behind me that I, you know, on people whose shoulders I stand on. And just the flood coming ahead ahead of me. After. Oh, I love that!
1: I love that the flood coming ahead of you, which certainly you you have helped pave the way for. I mean, the the breadth of your work. I think, in particular, because you've written so many short stories that are lengthy. They they stand alone, and they each one on their own carve out a new idea, a new imagination, a new experience for us as as readers. So I'm curious when you finish a work and you may go back after the editing that you just mentioned and go back to read it again, what are are you looking for to know that that story now is finished? How do you know that it's ready to go out into the world?
0: Yeah, well, I've been lucky with the short stories that I always feel like so happy that I get another shot like before they go into the book. (laughs) And often, you know, for those beautiful folks who are listening who are who are writers, uh, sometimes the difference between, you know, a okay story and a really good story is time, you know, mm-hmm. and having some time to put it away and then coming back, you know, with new eyes. Um, you know, which, you know, sometimes with in the type, you know, the sort of the the way we live now feels really like indulgent and you know, you need patience for that. But often, you know, I know it's finished for me in the first instance, when I keep going back, like, I'm putting the same thing in that I'm taking out, I'm putting this thing in, I'm putting it out. (laughs) Then I'm like, okay, maybe it's done. And I think, you know, um, in the moments, you just have to walk away. And, and you're like, this is the most I can do. This is the best I can do right now. And, Mm. um, and so but every time the you know, when we do the collection. So for everything inside, um, a lot of the stories were published earlier in different versions. And then with time and the, and and with the you know merging of all these stories, of course there are things that in one story will enrich the other story, right? If someone reads the first one and they when they get to the last one, they've sort of been building, so I revise, I'm I revise constantly. And um but a lot of my revision, like the revision that I'm most pleased about is late when, when I get a chance to add layers to something. So mm-hmm. you're like, wow, this is I didn't know this when I began, and then I at the end I learned this, and then you go back and you sort of layer that in, you sort of like yeah. move that in. And the short story is wonderful for that in a way that is harder in a novel because in a novel you're negotiating a lot more. But I've started writing, so I finished I I did just finish a novel. Um and yeah, I'm very good. <laughs> but it, um and one of the things that 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 helped I realized after writing sort of the it's a and I and I told myself I was like I want it to be like a real a real novel. Like like linear in this sense, like it goes from this, this happens, this happens, not in a boring way, but, um, but I, what I did that helped me in terms of imagining completion was to write it scene by scene. So I would, I literally went scene one, and then I wrote the scene, scene two, and and that helped me um, organize in a way because I I tend to sort of go like <laughs> like my mind tends to tend t- tend to wander. And that was a really good, um, a good practice. And it's, you know, I think it's important also for people to know that no matter how long we've been doing this, I remember, you know, Maya Angelou saying, you know, she used to go um, into a hotel room with her yellow pads. And she's like, no matter how many you've written, when you go into that hotel room with your yellow pad, it's still blank. Right. And you have to relearn that, you know, that practice over and over again.
1: I think, I think you've inspired probably many uh, budding authors. I'm thinking about one of my dear friends who is a fan of your work, who will be listening to this and has just finished her first novel, will be encouraged by your words, that even Edwidge has a process that requires patience and time and, and reflection. Uh, it's a daunting task, but I am thrilled to hear that you have a novel coming to us soon. That makes me very excited for, for that. And um, I, I want to talk about Haiti. I mean, you have honored and shown your love and deep affection for your country, your people. You've told stories of the diaspora. You've taken us right back home and made helped us to feel what it's like to be there. And I'm wondering, over the years, as different uh, political movements have happened in Haiti or there's been natural disasters They've broken all of our hearts. Those of us who are outside of Haiti, who don't, who are not Haitian, who who watch that and and grieve and mourn with you. As a writer, what, how does that feel, and how do you process at times the grief that you might be experiencing um, as Haiti hits, has hit tough times at different moments?
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's one of the things that you know our mutual friend Regine, Professor Jean Charles, we we talk about often is that I think what makes like what makes one do this work is in part like a kind of you know being like like so empathetic in a way right mm-hmm. and i'm not saying oh i'm so empathetic but i think part of being any kind of artist is being able to feel beyond your your own life in this deep way that you then try to convey so that makes that makes current events extremely painful at times, especially um concerning Haiti, right? and um, and I had still have I still have a lot of family in haiti and and um I you know people who young people, a lot of young people in my family who are constantly, you know we're constantly in touch and you know and and who are really directly affected by by events that they recount differently than when i was you know talking to my parents once a week that they recount in real time so sometimes you you know they will just all the details like all the images all the pictures all the stories you know like um, you'll have you know young women and they're like, oh my gosh, the guys are going by with the guns in front of the house, or they'll send you recordings of 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 gunshots, or you know they also you know will send you clips from conferences. They go to graduations, parties, you know, pulp, you know, it's like these all these mixture of things that you are living with them. Um, in a way that's very different
1: mm-hmm. than
0: than when um, than when I was there. So um, I, you know, I live it. Just I mean, I also live um, with. Um, I, I live in a um, multi generational house. My eighty six year old uh, mother in law lives with us. So that means in any Haitian household, a lot of YouTube <laughs> watching. Um, <laughs> commentators so it's kind of like in real time you're like you know the things that get circular on whatsapp and um you're living not like not like being there but having friends young friends who have chosen to stay who are professionals who work in work in media who work in the arts to artists you know um folks who are just you know folks in the countryside you know we know so a whole range of people who are there. Um, that is just it's it's like my heart is always uh, heart is always there. And so one way that I process is is through the work, um, and um, and and then to contribute in whatever other ways that I can. Well, you you it's it's interesting
1: that the, there's so many ties. I think the shared there's a shared
0: experience,
1: I think, for many of us in the diaspora who have left home. My parents left Ethiopia because of the communist revolution and, you know, when I was just a kid and different circumstances than when you left or when your parents left. But there is, there are themes that run throughout your work that have made me feel at home when I read your work, where it makes me feel seen and understood and even gives me language and understanding for my experience. And in particular, in everything inside perhaps because it's more a recent work, I don't know, some of those stories about the way that immigrants were, you know, this pull back and forth between home and, you know, the the U.S. or Miami, wherever they were at the time and the particular stories really felt very tangible to me. It was, I felt the tension, it was almost uncomfortable to read (laughs) (laughs) because I felt like at times, what what did Adurij want me to do? she tried to (laughs) tell me to do something here, you know, that I should be doing more? Should I be sending more home? Should I go back? And so when, your readers in particular who have left IETU, who are finding themselves anywhere in the world, you know, building lives and families and the next chapter of maybe Haiti's story, what do you want the diaspora in particular to take from your work that might be a little bit different than your readers back home?
0: Well, I think, you know, for the the diaspora, the story is born out of diaspora right? And I never, I mean, one of the things that, um, for example, when Breath Eyes Memories was, was um, published, um, folks would say, well, you know, is this Haitian literature? Is this American literature? Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I thought, you know, it's it's in the middle. It's sort of on that, on that hyphen, as Julio Alvarez said, right? We, mm-hmm. That this hyphen is the island, right? That that sort of that is the diaspora life where, um, so for me, always, I hope that people, empathy, really. I hope, um, and that's what literature does best. You know, I hope that you read this and as you, you know, thankfully said, you're able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You put yourself in somebody else's life that's what literature does best because I sometimes read a book where I feel like, Oh, I know this character much better than I know anybody in my life. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and that's so, that's such a beautiful thing that you could enter that you could get on, you know, into someone else's skin in that way. And I, and I, you know, I don't have any illusion that that changes the world necessarily, but I think, I think that at least reduces sort of these gaps between people that you'd be like, oh, I I think I know this a little bit. And then hopefully that encourages you to go out and read more, go out and learn more, pay a little more attention. And then, you know, if it, an opportunity comes, advocate if necessary for that, for that cause. And then that's, that's, you know, when I was a teenager reading I would read um Amy Tan, you know, I read the Journal Club and I thought, oh my gosh, that's like my mother. That's those yeah. are like my aunts. And and you know, and then I read Paul Marshall, you know, and I that I was like, that's definitely them, <laughs> you know. And so there's these things that sometimes, you know, that sort of literature just really brings together, like brings to light things that we may not have realized we we had in common, you know, bonds we didn't know we had. And certainly mm-hmm. even, you know, I think people in the desk were even were still surprised by like, oh man, you play this game too? Are you like, yes. even though know, you know, we, we know we're sort of like, we have this common heritage, you know, various though it be, but it still surprises us that sometimes that there are things that, that we share, you know, in a, in a very granular level sometimes.
1: Well, even the title of "Krik um, Crack, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. Yeah. But do I understand it that it's kind of like a call and response, isn't it, about mm-hmm. it? I mean, is it like tell me a story?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's of? like you, it's like, tell me, it's like Krik Crack. And then it follows sometimes with, you know, other variations, but it's really call and response. Yes, absolutely.
1: Yeah, we, we have the same thing here in, in Kenya, um, Hadithi and Joe, same thing. Tell me a story. And then in Ethiopia, we have another one, Taret Taret, so it's mm-hmm. exactly what you said, there there are these echoes of our shared cultures across tens of thousands of miles. Um, and it is quite a beautiful and powerful thing when we recognize ourselves in your work and your words. And I, I thank you for that. I think for my family, for my eldest daughter, it's really, your work has really been a way we connect and talk about life through your work. So I am so grateful for that and thank for what you. it continues to give me personally, but of course it's given the world. So. You recently this year were recognized with a Lifetime Achievement Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Uh Malamud Award. What what does a prize like that signal to you when you start to get Lifetime Achievement Awards? <laughs> Edwidge? how does that feel yeah. as a writer? And, and what does that signal to you?
0: Well, I mean, thankfully, it's there are some even younger people who had it. <laughs> And this one is a it's a lifetime achievement for the short story, which yes. is such a special, um, you know, and it's such a special genre for me, as we've been saying that it's just it meant a lot to get it. And, and you know, in, in the comment, when they asked me to comment and immediately I thought for me, the short story is so aligned with how I learn stories, you know, through storytelling in Haiti. So that was extra, extra special. I mean, it's, you know, for me, when I looked in the company of the folks who have won this award, you know, like Jhumpa Lahiri, yes. you know, just like really wonderful, wonderful Lydia Davis, wonderful short story writers. Um, it just, it means, it means a lot. It means a lot. And I, you know, it's just, I've, I love the form and um, it, it it meant a lot. And those things always, you know, these kinds of awards are very, I always have to kind of pause and think, oh, my goodness, you know, it's just like I sat down and wrote one word, and then once it became a sentence, then it became a story, then it became many stories. You know, it's also um, when you're looking back, it's also a testament in a way to to perseverance, you know, and and, and the sense of like, of course, nobody feels like doing this every, all the time. I love writing, but there are moments where it's not fun. And um but just trying to see something amorphous—you know—I have like a big idea, or something comes that other people, other people read, and then just want to put in the company of these other wonderful creators. It's 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 wonderful. It's it's very it's beautiful. I don't know what else to say, but it's, well, it's nice. I want to say. Well, <laughs>
1: Well, it's just, it's wonderful for all of us to to be reminded of your contributions and how, yeah, as you said, you're in such good company with some of really the world's master storytellers. And even this interview for me has been such a great masterclass. I will re-listen to it with the ear as a creative of things that I can do to implement a practice of storytelling like you have outlined for us today. You know, we we put out to our readers that we were going to be interviewing to you, interviewing you, not our readers. See, I've turned myself into a writer. Our listeners. <laughs> that we were going to be interviewing you and we asked them to to send in some questions um so let me take a moment and ask you a few of the questions from our listeners because uh, I love that they were a few of them very specific to specific work so we had one uh, reader ask us what was the inspiration behind little guy's character from the story a wall of fire rising in crick crack
0: can you tell us a little about, about him Okay, so I'll just, for those who haven't read the story, A Wall of Fire Rising, it's about this family and the young man gets a part in a play and he plays Buchmann, the, the Haitian Revolutionary. So that there's a speech by Buchmann, um that is given, you know, when the Haitian Revolutionary begins in guacaima and 1791. It's like, you know, the, he speaks to... About God. And he says, we've, you know, we've worshipped our gods. Now we're going to worship our own. And then we're going to just go fight. And so, um, that was really the, that, that speech is, was the inspiration for, for little guy. And I thought, I remember when I was writing that story, thinking about this revolutionary moment and thinking just how, um, you know, especially growing up in Haiti, you recite history, like you, we do rote memorization. So you okay. always have this like things that are always in the, the, your mind, you know, like, you know, and overthrowing me to St. liberty said, you, you've like overthrown the tree of liberty, but not its root. I'm paraphrasing. but So you have these phrases that are always like Shakespeare to you and, and the Bookman less so, but it was always there. And so the Bookman is actually the actual speech um, and thinking about, how it might resonate in, you know, in moments of contemporary struggle is what inspired that story.
1: Oh, thank you for that. I'm, I'm delighted to get that, that back story to him and his character. And I wish we had more time. I'm just noticing, you know, for, for listeners, I apologize if you're feeling unsatisfied with the amount of time, but there's so many more questions, so I'm gonna keep moving in the interest of time. But we had another person uh, write in and ask, what inspires you about Queen Anaka'ona? Who was a young adult story or young reader story? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, that yes. Yeah. Yes, and Anakaona was, you know, an indigenous ruler in, um, in Haiti. And so I remember just being intrigued by, by her, because uh her apparently where she ruled was in Leugan, which is where my family's from. And I remember being in Haiti one time and thinking, oh, I want to write, uh, you know, I had just passed the Anacauna school. And and then and then I and I was like, I should write about Anakaona. And then our car, my husband I would, you know, my husband was driving, and then our car broke down in front of the Anakaona police station. <laughs> oh <my laughs> so so I, said, I meant to write the story. And then yeah. um and then I was a huge reader of the uh scholastics royal diaries. And I and I wrote them. I, you know, I like pleaded to write this. I was like, we, I wanna write about this indigenous, you know, woman. And they said, well, they had no writings in their time. <laughs> you, know, <it> was, <laughs> you know, like, and they're like, we'll get we'll work around that, you know. And so um, yeah, that's just my love for for for, for the story. And and she was, you know, also, you know, she was just uh, an artist. She was a ruler, but she was an artist, and just a and then my friend Ulrique had painted a gorgeous portrait um of her that also was gu- guided me through, um, through the whole writing <laughs> of it.
1: I wish I had written this question, but I didn't. But this came in from a listener as well. And I just love the way they have framed so many of your works and the representation of women and how central they are as characters and how important they are as vehicles for other themes. So they wrote, um, you tie the political to the personal in your narratives. And oftentimes women's lives and relationships our a vehicle to explore perhaps a political situation. What is it about women's lives that make them a strong conduit for some of your political questions regarding the state of IAT or themes around restoration, family revolution, and so on? Any of the numerous themes. That I, I just love that idea as women's lives and relationships as a vehicle for your themes and your novels. Would you agree with that statement? And, and if so, you know how, how important are women to you in your writing?
0: Oh yeah, I would definitely agree with that that statement. I, and and women, you know, in in Haiti we say women are the potomitan, like the middle pillar. I mean, sometimes it's you know it's just kind of like it has also this flip side of like the strong black woman thing, and do we always have to be strong? But um, but in a way, they're de- you know, women are certainly the the potomitan of my of my writing, and um, and for me, it, you know, it's there women, because I had all these surrogate mothers and and there were women in the society, you know, who didn't have they didn't have much money, they didn't have you know, social status, like social status. But they were in our lives, they were everything. and And for me, like, and I would see that in so many places in the countryside, in different parts of the city not that men were you know put aside but also we'd had a dictatorship for 30 years that imprisoned so many men or enrolled them in these you know and you know just and they were enrolled them as henchmen for it oh. that that women especially the particular time that i was growing up really played a really strong role um in keeping the society together at the time where a lot of men were migrating or you know, or being forced to the Dominican Republic to work in the sugarcane or, you know, so or in the prisons of the dictatorship. Um, And for me, also, I think there's a way that the political follows through our lives, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it, it affects so much of the personal that women have always kind of held up, you know, held up for it with a lot of, with a lot of obstacles, um, you know, before I knew what feminism was, I knew a lot of feminist or, womanist, like, and to Alice Walker's definition, I, I saw that in front of my, my eyes. Um, we didn't have, you know, I didn't have the words for it, but I saw it in action. I saw it l- being lived. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's really the, the lens, um, that launched me into storytelling for certainly and then later on i think um you know as i got older i started also i started seeing more of my fathers and the men in my life and how they supported the women in their lives but yeah the women yeah 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 yay
1: We, we, we have enjoyed actually both characters, definitely from your writing, both the strength of men and women who, who make the communities and the families that you so beautifully portray in your work. So you, you've done them justice, both. Yes, thank you. <laughs> like middle pillar, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. Well, I, I, I sadly, we've kind of run out of time, but not out of questions. So thankfully, we have a mutual friend who I can continue to, uh, you know, pester to, to find my way back to you. But before we let you go, I have two last questions that we like to ask every guest who comes on our show because we really recognize it is a, a through line throughout humanity, wherever we may be in the diaspora, on the continent, and beyond. So we ask two very simple questions. One, first, Edwidge, what is your favorite drink?
0: Oh, what is my favorite drink? I'm boring with these types of questions. Okay. <laughs> You're allowed. Okay. All right. um I don't even drink that much, but I wanna. I guess. What is my What is my favorite drink? And coffee. I should
1: say daytime drinks too. Coffee. Coffee is perfect. Coffee. Coffee's coffee. Perfect, yes. Coffee. Too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm gonna bring you some Ethiopian coffee next time. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Ethiopian coffee is coming your way. And then, lastly, we we are a show that's all about joy and justice, and we really believe there's joy in justice, and you know, justice brings joy to to communities. So, what's bringing you joy today?
0: Oh, what's bringing me joy today? So later today, I am um, interviewing Jhumpa Lahiri, and no. at the Greenlight Bookstore in Brooklyn. And, and we're, we're, we happened, it's funny, we're, I'm speaking to you from the campus at Columbia University, where I'm now teaching, and she's teaching at Barnard, where we both went. <laughs> wow. So that's also bringing, that, that's bringing me joy. And, um, and just like, um, my children bring me joy, my family, just, you know, and I, and, you know, I'm 54 now, and I'm at this point where I start echoing my mother. Like, just waking up in the morning <laughs> brings us healthy and walking, and 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 okay is an occasion for celebration and joy, and and um, and being able to even think about justice and the possibility of contributing to 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 justice um, in whatever way we can all do it. Yes. um brings joy.
1: Thank you for that. That's really a powerful way to sum up a lifetime of work and beauty that you have added to all of our lives and reach. I mean this is just such a delight for me to have had this chance to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for your work, your contributions, your leadership, your voice. We look to you oftentimes to make sense of where we are, you know, in, in political times or in times of moments of where we feel disconnected from home and your words often are that bridge for, for me and for so many. So thank you so much for who you are and for being with us
0: today. Thank you. Thank you. I, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. And
1: listeners, we know you might have more questions for the wonderful Edwige dantica And so if you do send us a message at Salam and Hello on where are we? We're on TikTok or on Instagram. You can find us or you can send us an email, lily at salamandhello.com. And until we meet again, peace.